I, I love preaching through scripture. So topical sermons are good. But when you take a passage of scripture and say, God, you're the boss. Your word is completely true. I submit to your word. And you look at a whole selection of verses like we're going to do this morning. I find God speaks to me the most. And God teaches me things that I maybe don't always think about. And I get stretched. And this morning's passage in James 4 is all about what can you do when you're in a conflict situation? Maybe you're in conflict with your spouse. Maybe in conflict with your teenager. Maybe in conflict with your workmate, with a business partner. Uh, maybe you're in conflict with a neighbour. What does God call us to do to advance things along? Because if you're not in harmony with the people around you, that affects the flow of the Spirit. Pastor Tuck said last week in West, I'll just quote him, when we have a broken relationship, the fire of the Holy Spirit in us will dim. He's absolutely right. If we go through a conflict situation and it's not resolved, somehow that affects the flow of the Holy Spirit in us. And it's really important that these relationships are right so that relationship is at its optimum. So we can hear from his voice, the flow of the Spirit is great. And we're looking at a passage this morning from James chapter 4 that helps us look at what's going on inside of us when we're in conflict. We all know Matthew 18, 15 to 17 quite well. If I see my sister or brother sinning, go to them in person and try and restore them. If they don't listen to me, take a second person. If they still continue to sin, I go and take that, uh, that situation to one of the leaders in the church. But what happens if the problem isn't completely the other person? What happens if some of the problem is in me as well? I remember doing a counselling class many years ago. And they gave this riddle, and I'm going to get you to think about it, and give the answer to the riddle to the person nearest to you this morning. Here's the riddle we had in counselling 30-something years ago. There was a man, Kiwi bloke. He lived in a cul-de-sac. And in the cul-de-sac, his neighbours were grumpy, his neighbours were unfriendly. People didn't talk to him in the street. In fact, people were blatantly rude and selfish. After 10 years of putting up with the terrible, terrible neighbours, this man chose to sell his house and move to another cul-de-sac, another neighbourhood in a better part of town. The thing was, six months into living in that neighbourhood, he found that his new neighbours were just like his old neighbours. What's the problem? Tell the person beside you. The problem was the man himself. Did his neighbour get that right? He had bad neighbours here. He went to another environment. He had bad neighbours there. He could go to anywhere in the planet. But he's carrying some of the rubbish. Jesus talks about the log and the speck. Sometimes you look at someone else and go, gosh, they're, they're annoying. They're frustrating. They should be doing this. They should be doing that. They, they should be more mature. And we see a fault in them when in reality. Some of the same materials in their own lives as well. James chapter 4 is an amazing passage. It's kind of like when you're in a conflict situation, and yes, you're, you can see the other person's faults and weaknesses, what do you do as a Christian? So that your heart gets examined. So that you look inwardly as well and submit to God. And let God speak to you and deal with you. I believe as a church we will keep growing because we love Jesus, we preach the word, and we're a church of prayer. I believe as a church, as we keep growing, the diversity in the church will increase. 
So there'd be more and more rich people and very poor people, more and more people from different cultures and different ages and stages. And when you have a great diversity of people, you've got to work extra hard to keep the unity. And when we start to see people saved every week, and I don't just mean prayer, prayer, I mean people that go on for Jesus, people that become family, disciples for life. When we start to see that happen, you know what? Satan ain't going to like it. And one of the first things Satan's going to do is say, how can I divide and disrupt the unity in Church Unlimited Whangarei? And if we've got in mind principles of Scripture that we're looking at this morning in James 4, and we know what to look out for, we know the enemy's attacks, not only will we keep safe, but we'll take ground and we'll keep the gift of unity God's given us. Normally when I read Scripture, I ask people to stand and um, that's just a respect for the Word of God. Uh, preachers are judged first uh, for how we teach scriptures. It's so important. God's word is God's word. His opinion, what he says, is far more important than mine. So I often get people to stand. But because I'm reading small two or three verses at a time, it'll be like aerobics Oz style if I get you to stand this morning. You'll be up and down every couple of seconds and worn out by the time you get to your cup of coffee. So remain seated, but know in your heart, know in my heart, to have respect for the Bible. It says no matter what's going on in life, the Bible is true from cover to cover. And I submit to it, and I encourage you to do the same. James chapter 4, verses 1 through to 4. Old camel knees. Jesus is half-brother. He's been teaching in James, first of all, don't show me, tell me all your words about your faith and how great faith you have unless you follow it through an action. And James said, boy, real Christianity? It's not a whole lot of words. It's looking after the widow and the poor and reaching out into the community and loving on them practically. Then he goes on, he says, but words are important. And if you were to control your tongue, your tongue reflects what's in the heart. And if you can control your tongue, if the things you say don't offend people, don't hurt people, then you're a perfect person or a mature person, your translations would say. Now we get to James chapter 4 and he says, you know what, the real issue isn't what you say, it's a heart issue. So what's going on in your heart that really matters because the mouth speaks what's in the heart, what the mouth is, the heart is full of. James chapter 4 verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you must make yourself an enemy of God, of, of the world. If you're a friend with God, you need to be an enemy of the world. Uh, James is blunt. James is strong in the way he puts things. If you were to break down this first couple of verses, I'd summarize it this way. When you're struggling with somebody, A, is pride at work. B, have you asked God, have you prayed for that person? And C, are you sure that your motives are right? Because motives matter. James was the bluntest of all apostles. Not the sort of guy people would have run to for counselling. Prayer, yes. Active faith, yes. Counselling, probably not. Comfort, probably not. 
He would challenge them very quickly about sin and call them to a place of repentance. And sometimes when we're in conflict with somebody, we, we feel like, gosh, we want to we do something to reposition them, to get the better of them, to help them recognise what they're doing is wrong, help them face some consequences. Sometimes we want to tell a friend or somebody else about how they've hurt us and the hope that we bond with that person. We get some comfort from that person. And when we do things like that, when we manipulate, when we put down, when we gossip, James would say, you know, pride's really at work. There's pride in your heart. Oh, you're in conflict with a person, and you can see five or six things they're doing wrong, but what that means is deep down inside there's a heart issue. There's a pride issue. You're wanting to be recognized. You're wanting something that they've got. It's a pride issue. So what should you do? Oh, camel knees, the man who spent so long praying that his knees looked like camel knees. That's how he got his nickname. This old apostle, he said, what should you do when you're in conflict with someone? First of all, you pray. You're in trouble because you haven't asked God for help. So pray. Pray for them. Now you and I, I bet everyone in this room has had the experience where someone's hurt you, someone's treated you wrongly, someone's ripped you off, and you've got upset about it, but then the Holy Spirit's taken, captured your time and your attention, and you just started to bless that person. You started to pray for that person who's wronged you. And you're saying, God, I just want your favour on them. Lord, I want you to touch their hearts. Lord, I want good things to happen. Lord, I release them to you. Lord, come close to them. And you're praying for that person who's hurt you, that person you're in conflict with, and something dramatic happens in you, doesn't it? You can't be praying for somebody and then praying on them at the same time. You can't be praying for them without feeling something of the love of God for that person. Something of the compassion of God for that person. And if you're praying for them, your heart will be changed. And you'll have a greater love and appreciation for them. Don't pray on them, pray for them. You haven't got a solution to your conflict because maybe you haven't prayed. Or or maybe uh, you've asked with the wrong motives. Thinking of a prayer illustration, I remember hearing of a story of two pastors. This is 100 years ago. Back in the days where people would mend clothes, there's probably not too many doing that nowadays, but they would sew on patches and things. Two pastors' wives are in the kitchen, and they're sewing their husband's pants. The first wife said, you know what? My, my husband hates the ministry. He has so much division. People are all complaining. People are moaning. He has so much trouble with his leadership team. It, it's awful. And the second wife said, gosh, that's amazing. My husband can't thank God enough for the people in our church. There's so much unity and so much volunteerism and so much beauty and so much love. And then we note in the illustration that the, the one with the grumpy husband, the one with the pastor's complaining about life, his wife was patching the seat of his pants because he was sitting on his backside moaning all the time. The guy that was happy, the guy that was saying, God bless you for a chance to be a minister in your kingdom. Bless you for a chance to pastor a church. You know what part of his clothing his wife was patching up? Of course, his knees. Often we don't have because we don't ask. And God can change our hearts and restore a relationship and give us the right attitude simply by praying blessing on the other person. Verse 3 says, And when you ask, you don't get it because you ask for the wrong motives. I remember reading Ruth Graham's story, Billy Graham's wife. 
Years ago, she tells a story about when she was a young lady, she fell in love. And she prayed in earnest, God, cause this man I'll fall in love with to fall in love with me and marry me. And she prayed and she prayed and darn it, God didn't answer her prayer. And she was so disappointed. Years later, she fell in love with a second man. She said, God, this is the one. This is the one. God, give me this man. Turn his heart toward me. May we get married and fall in love. And God didn't answer the prayer again. A couple of years later, she met Billy Graham. And she looks back and she says, God, thank you that when I asked with the wrong motives, when I wasn't led by you, you said no. You didn't answer my prayer. But when I asked for the right man with the right motives, the prayer got answered. And an incredible legacy was left in hundreds and thousands of people's lives because of those two. Sometimes we ask for the wrong motives. I wonder sometimes when we pray, if instead of coming to God and saying, God, I need and I want, and I hear this more mature style of prayer in this church often, we should just come to God and say, God, I love you. What do you want me to do? So instead of prayer being, God, here's your orders, and this is what I need you to do in my situation, I wonder if the better way to pray is to just get into his presence and love on him the way I see so many in this church do, and worship and say, God, here I am. There's a problem. I'm reporting for duty. What's your plan for me? What's the next step for me? Our motives need to be right. God wants the very best for you is point number two. Not an easy passage to understand, but from the New Living Translation, do you think that scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. In the NIV it says, or do you think, or do you think scripture says without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Let me explain. You're all familiar with that passage about grieving the Holy Spirit? When you grieve the Holy Spirit, it's when you choose a path that's not the best for you. So God is jealous for the Holy Spirit in you. And he looks at you, he just wants you to have the best life. And when you choose option B or option C or option D, and you miss out on the very best life, that causes grief. Let me illustrate it for you this way. You've got a 16-year-old daughter. You love her. You just think so much of her. You want the very best for her. She comes home from college one day and she says, Dad, Mum, I'm in love. I found the right guy. He's just awesome. And she speaks about this guy with glowing terms and her face lights up. And you think, oh, I'm so happy. My little girl's fallen in love and she's happy. A couple of weeks later, he turns up the one she's fallen in love with. He turns up on his Harley Davidson and he makes a lot of noise on the drive when you look out the window and you see the dreadlocks coming out from under his helmet. You can see the tattoos of both arms and a bottle of whiskey in a pocket and eye patch over his left eye, you know. She says, Dad, Mum, that's the guy. That's the guy I love. I just got, hey, I found the one for me. What you feel at that point it's the same as what the Holy Spirit feels, what God feels when you choose option B, option C, option D. God wants the best for you. He wants to guide the Spirit in you. He wants you to choose the best path because he knows the end from the beginning. If you're the parent of that 16-year-old girl, you're thinking, oh, no, oh, if she goes down this track of heart, it'll be broken and so on, and there'll be conflict and so many problems and drugs and all sorts of terrible things because you can see what's likely to happen. This God changes this man. 
God looks at our choices. He's jealous for the Holy Spirit in us. He's saying, oh, my spirit's in you. Listen to my spirit. Let me guide you because I want the very best, the very best for you. He doesn't want you to grieve the Holy Spirit. Go for option B or C. He wants you to choose option A. He wants to guide you in that path. Number three, pride is a barrier of getting God's help. Humility is the door that God's help will come through. It says in verse 6, And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say. He opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. If you're proud and you're not asking, you're not praying, you're on your own. In fact, if you're not praying, it proves that you're proud. I'm going to sort it out myself. Got a conflict with someone and it's all their fault. And I'm going to sort it out and I'm not praying. There's pride right there. C.S. Lewis wrote a classic book called Mere Christianity. And then he had a chapter called The Greatest Sin of All. Do you know what it was? Pride. And he says at the end of the chapter, if you've read this chapter on pride and you don't think it applies to you, it definitely does. One of the most offensive people I've ever heard was a guy called Muhammad Ali uh, when I was a young kid. And we had black and white TV way back, way back, way back. Times of days of Noah, just about, you know. And this guy would come on TV and he'd say, I'm, was he float like a butterfly, sting like a bee? The punch of Ali. And he'd say, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. And to be honest with you, when I heard this guy boasting, something inside of me as a young boy went, oh, that's just, that's just wrong. That's just ugly. You know, this guy's full of pride. There's a story told, a true story of him hopping on a, a jetliner. As he hopped on the plane, the air hostess came up to him and said, excuse me, Mr. Ali, would you please buckle your seatbelt? Mr. Ali turned to him, true story, and said, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. To which she replied, and Superman doesn't need a plane. You know, and it's true. Years later, this man that said, I am the greatest, could be seen on TV shaking with that terrible, terrible disease, Parkinson's. Unable to walk, unaided. Pride is an ugly thing. Humility is a beautiful thing. And when someone humbles himself before God, says, God, I need you. I'm willing to take this relationship, this problem to you in prayer. God is going to come. God is going to pour out his grace. God is going to restore and bring healing and bring strength. Number four, humble yourself. What's it look like to humble yourself? I'll suggest to you from James's writing, it's A, Resisting the devil. B, coming close to God. And C, purifying yourself. Verse 7. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honour. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How many of you enjoyed Charles' sermon last week? Man, I love that. That was so good. He was calling into being things that weren't as if they are. Often when Satan attacks, you've got to say, I know this is what I'm looking at. I know this is a mess. I know this is broken. But Satan, you're not going to win this one. God's going to win it. I'm going to resist the devil and declare God's goodness and favour over me. Often in life, 
Satan trips us up in the same way again and again and again. And he can't read your mind like God can. He, can't, he, can, he can look at you, he can do trial and error effectively and work out his strategies from trial and error. And if he can wind you up so you don't do the will of God, he's going to do it again. So imagine on a, a Sunday morning and you have it in your heart to get your family to church, that's what the word says. You want to worship the Lord and all of a sudden the kids get grumpy and ratty and they start fighting. And you think, oh, I'm just not going to go to church this Sunday. It's just too stressful. Kids are just a handful. So you back off. What does Satan do when he sees that? He goes, oh, that worked. You know what he's going to do next week? Kids are going to be ready again. Maybe there's a family down the road and they're poor. And you're looking at this family and you just feel your heart drawn toward them. You feel like it's going to be awkward to go and see them and show them some random acts of kindness. But God's calling you to do it. And just before you pick up that food and a nice card that you've prayerfully written and you know, walk down the road to that neighbour, you have a great big fight with your wife or your spouse. And after the barn, you're like, I'm doing anything today. I don't know what sport. I'm just going to, you know, switch off. And you know what will happen next time you want to reach out to a poor person? Next time you want to reach a neighbour for Jesus? Satan will say, well, that tactic worked last time. I'm going to do it again. There are cycles in our lives, friend, where we think, in this era, I keep tripping over. I keep tripping over. I keep saying, God, I'm sorry, I mucked up again. I mucked up again. You know what's happening? Satan's saying, that tactic's working. I'm going to keep doing it. And at some point, you're going to take ground and say, I'm going to resist Satan. This might be really stressful for me. This might be really hard for me. But I'm going to resist Satan. Satan is not going to win today. Satan is not going to change God's plan and purposes for my family or for my life or for this day. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to push on in the things of God. It can be a real battle. You do that several times, and Satan will back off. He'll look for another tactic to try. Resist the enemy. And he will flee from you. Draw close to God. What that means is turn off the TV. What that means is take time out to really hear his voice. What that means is do something you don't ordinarily do. Open up the scriptures and meditate on his word. Do something to intentionally hear his voice more clearly. Draw close to God and he will draw close to you. You do that not to win God's favour. You do that because you want to be close to him. You want to hear his voice. For the same reason, you purify yourself. Why do Christians spend time repenting of their sin? Why do they spend time fasting? Why do they spend time examining their motives? Why do they take time out to go and sit on a beach somewhere? It's not to twist God's arm. God, can you see I fasted for three days? You need to answer my prayer, you know. God, I've been so good uh, doing these things, getting up at 4.30 to pray in the morning. You need to show me your favour. It's not to twist God's arms. It's to hear his voice. I love the fact that God is continually speaking to us and singing over us. That's what Scripture says. So uh, if I take these steps to purify myself, it's not because God's going to love me anymore. It's not because... um, Somehow I'm going to compel God to do a bigger miracle for me. It's so that I can tune into his voice. Kevin O'Brien spoke about Radio Rima a couple of weeks ago. And I often think, gosh, Radio Rima is constantly broadcasting God's word around the nation. It's a wonderful thing. Can I hear it? No, I can't. It's broadcasting now and I can't hear it. 
I've got to turn on the radio. I've got to tune into the right station to hear the voice. It's exactly the same. If I want to resist the enemy, if I want to draw close to God, I need to switch off the distractions. I need to tune into what he's saying and purify myself. we part of that process. So when I find myself in conflict with someone, and I'm so stressed out and upset with them that I want to talk, to them, uh, talk about them to someone else, someone sympathetic, when I want to get one over them, the Bible says stop. The real issue is a heart issue. It's your heart issue. There's some pride in there somewhere. Don't pray on them. Start praying for them. God's Holy Spirit's in you, and he's there to help you make the best decision. So humble yourself by resisting the devil, coming close to God, and by tuning into his voice. What else does God say through his half-brother, through Jesus' half-brother James, to help us in conflict? Number five, leave the judgment of that person to God. It says in verse 11, Don't speak evil against each other. Dear brothers and sisters, if you criticise and judge each other, then you're criticising and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbour? What law is he talking about? Galatians 5 verse 14 talks about it being the law of love. The law of love. And what did Jesus say? He said all the Old Testament, the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and... Love your neighbour as yourself. If I'm not doing that, if I'm stepping into judgment, I'm trying to take God's job. My job is to love. His job is to judge. He sees all things. He knows all things. My job is just to love. November 28, 1979, Air New Zealand Flight 901 flew into Mount Erebus on Ross Island, Antarctica, killing 237 passengers and 20 crew. At that time, I was a very young man. And um, at that time, we were singing a song in the churches around New Zealand, uh, tell my people I love them, tell my people that I care. When they feel far away from me, tell my people I am there. So as a nation, we were grieving, and the message had nothing to do with judgment. It was like God's call to me. It really felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, Russell, this is your role in life. Get out there and love on people. Tell people I love them. Show them, show them my love practically. And it felt like part of God's call to my life personally. He didn't say, tell my people I need to sharpen up. He didn't say, tell my people I need to do better. They're not trying hard enough. He said, tell my people I love them. So when you're in a conflict situation, when someone's really getting under your skin and you want to gossip about them and manipulate the situation to your advantage, examine your heart. You probably have a heart issue, in particular a pride issue. Don't talk about them or try and control them. Instead, pray for them. Humble yourself so that even you have, um, so that even if you have helped make the, the situation bad, the grace of God can flow through your life to protect you from temptation and to restore the situation. Recognize Satan's uh, attacks and resist him, or he will keep pushing the repeat button in your life. Draw close to God. Get tuned into his voice. Leave the judging up to God. That's his job. Your job is to love people. In so doing, you fulfill the law of the prophets. Finally, one last word in this passage from Jesus' half-brother, an inspiring word. Number six, 
It's okay to make plans, but don't put all your hopes in your plans and strategies. Be open to God, giving you new direction daily. Verse 13, look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to have a certain town and we'll stay there for a year. We'll do business here and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or do that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans and also such boasting is evil. Remember, it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Last year, I made about 20 trips to hospital. You know, probably half of those in ambulances. And one thing it taught me was this. Life is like a vapour. You can't guarantee that you're going to be here tomorrow or here next week or here next year. You can't guarantee that. You can't guarantee that the things you're planning are going to happen because there's so many factors involved. When I first became a Christian, when I just, just turned 20, uh, I had to uh, take my first funeral. It was a young teenage boy who was sniffing petrol, lit a cigarette and burned himself to death. My first funeral I took when I was pastoring a little place called Te Aroha was a seven-year-old girl who was accidentally killed by her auntie. And I had so many children to bury and teenagers to bury over the years. And what it says to me is this, life is like a vapour. It's like a fog. It's, you can't guarantee you're going to be here next week, next year, year after that. So what can you do? You can set plans. Oh, God wants you to, to have a house. God wants you to have holidays. God wants you to do fun things. God wants you to enjoy stuff. He does. But you hold those plans lightly. Because the most important thing isn't the plans. The most important thing is the daily relationship. I have plans, but don't put all your hope in your plans. When I get that new car, I'll be happy. When I get that promotion, life is going to be good. But when I find Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, it's all going to be okay. Life's going to be brilliant. Don't lean all your hope and your expectation, your energies into those plans. What you should do is say, God, I'd like this. I'm praying for that, and that's good. And he'll probably give it at the right time, with the right personal situation. The more important thing is to say, today, God, I'm walking in your will, and I'm hearing your voice, and I'm feeling your presence. And God, if you should take me today, that's fine. But if should I last longer, these things would be nice as well. I remember my dad 20 years ago. I went to um, North Shore Hospital. He'd had two strokes in a day, so he should not have lived anywhere near this length of time. And he was all curled up in the fetal position. And the doctor caught me as I went into the ward to see him and said, listen, Mr. Watts, your dad, probably not going to last for the night. This is 20 years ago. So I, I, took, I had to carry dad to the toilet and look after him, bring him back to his bed. And I sat beside him. I said, dad, you think it's your time? And he looked at me and he said, I'll never forget this. He said, I don't know if it's my time or not, but if God keeps me alive, I'm going to keep busy for Jesus. Uh, they told me he wouldn't walk for a month. I went back two days later and nobody could find him. He'd, it, he found his way up to the hospital gardens and he was doing gymnastic type exercises, stretching his muscles and working out in the gardens. And he's lived a very full 20 years, his last 20 years. The thing was for Dad, it wasn't about the goals. It was about keeping busy for Jesus. 
And I want to say to people this morning, boy, sometimes you think, I'm going to put off doing this ministry. I've got this dream for God. I'm going to put it off till all the ducks are on the line and there's less pressure in my life. I don't know how wise that is, friends. If God's put a call in your life, he's put some desire to serve him in somewhere in your heart, I wouldn't put it off. I'd start moving in now. If you're here this morning and you think, gosh, I believe in God, but I want to keep doing my own thing for a while. And after a period of time when I'm a bit older, when I've had some experiences, then I'll commit to Jesus. That's crazy. You may never make it past tomorrow. You don't know that. Only God knows that. You need to be right with Jesus today and right with Jesus tomorrow. And that's the only way to live. Keep yourself right with God. Keep yourself right in relationship to other people. Live your best life today because life is really like a morning fog. Love God, love people, and walk humbly before your God daily. Then no matter whether your life is long or short, you'd have fulfilled your purpose and lived your best life with the time you were given. I'm going to get the worship team to come forward and lead us in the last song. But I want to say this to you as they come forward. If you know you're out of step with the will of God, if you've allowed conflict to dampen the flow of the Holy Spirit in you, you need someone to pray with. You need to talk to one of the ministry team after church. If you're here this morning, you've been putting off putting your life right with God. I don't want you to go home and gamble with your future. I just want to invite you this morning, if you know you need to put your life right with God, after this song, come forward and talk to one of the ministry team at the front of the church. They'll explain things to you. They'll love on you. They'll make sure you're put in the right position with God with good understanding.